Well, happy Super Bowl to you. I feel like it's national holiday now and we should acknowledge it. Uh, this game is lose-lose for me. Uh, I don't like either team. Des made the catch. The Cowboys should be playing, and that's the last I'm going to talk about it. Um, yeah, if you booed, um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, my name is Brandon. I'm the pastor of Preaching and Vision here at uh, at Sojourn Heights. I'm, I'm excited about this little probably two-month-ish window. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be back in our building by, uh, by Easter. But I, I'm excited about this season because as I've been mentioning the last couple of weeks, it's a chance for us to be reminded. It's a chance for us to be reminded that what God's called us to be is a people. This collective family, church as family, that we're not an event, we're not a building, we're a people. We're a people who gather to express and to experience the grace of God and in church as family. And so I'm, I'm thrilled about this reminder to be able to go back to the building where it began, which if you don't know, that's where our first Sunday gathering, 10, 10, 10, uh, October 10th, 2010, was in the basement of the building that we're headed back to. And so looking forward to this little window of time. I'm not looking forward to being homeless on Wednesday and not having an office, but I am looking forward to us all being together as one family, one church family, having one gathering uh, in this, this little two-month window that we've got. All right, we're in the middle of our Epiphany series. Uh, epiphany is uh, this word that means appearing, so Christ appeared, and now we're looking at events in the life of Christ. And last week, we, uh, we, we looked at Jesus calling his first disciples, and now we're just going to pick up where the story left off in Mark. And so uh, let's, let's get started. Uh, we, we all have, every one of us in this room, you do, I do, we all have a vision of the good life, right? We, we all have... Um, this vision of what our good life is. The good life, it's actually a philosophical term that dates back 2,300-ish years, uh, and, and it would be defined as the life that we all want, right? So the life that you want, that's your, your good life, and we all have one. We all have this life that we envision, and whatever it is, whatever it is that will get us the life that we envision, we hand authority in our lives and of our lives over to it. Right, so whatever it is that's going to get us the life that we envision, we hand authority in our lives over to it to get us whatever that is. Let me give you a couple of examples. Right, so if, if, if your good life is financial security, right, if financial security is your good life, then, then here's what's going to happen. Every time a, a professional decision has to be made, money is going to be the bottom line. Money is going to be the factor that everything gets filtered through. And what will happen is that other important factors get squeezed out, right? Money will become the, the bottom line. It'll become the grid that everything runs through. If, um, if it's acceptance, if acceptance is the good life, uh, then you're going to wind up finding yourself as a chameleon to every group of people you come in contact with, right? Trying to just fit in with whoever you can fit in with. And what will get squeezed out is principle. Right, the person you really want to be will get squeezed out because your, your good life is a life where you don't feel the sting of rejection. And so you become a chameleon to everyone. Right, whatever our good life is, we give authority of our life over to it. We all do it. And what, whatever it is, it has authority over us. In our text today, this is, this is going to be the collision of the text because this is the, the first demonstration of the kingdom. So Jesus has come. Uh, remember a couple weeks ago we said, um, that the kingdom is here. So it's Jesus. The kingdom is at hand. Then he calls his disciples to follow him in this kingdom. And now 
today, this text is going to have the first demonstration of that kingdom. And it's going to be a demonstration of authority. And as such, there's going to be an exceptional amount of humility required out of you and out of me for us to hear what Jesus is going to want to say to you. And it's going to require humility on your part to look at this authority, the authority of Jesus, and be ready and willing to hear what Jesus has to say to you this morning. Because our text is going to be an invitation. It's going to be an invitation to take to take the authorities of your life, to take those things that you have said, you give me the good life, those things you've handed authority over to, and to submit them to the authority of Jesus. That's the invitation. That's what's going to be on the table for you today. And it's going to take humility to hear it and to see it. And so we're going to look at it. We're going to look at it in three, three categories. First, competing authorities. And then we're going to see a counterintuitive authority. And then a counterintuitive response. So competing authorities, counterintuitive authority, counterintuitive response. Let's start in verse 21. Back at the beginning. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Now let me, let me just pause right here because we need this to set the stage, set the scene for what's about to happen. What, why Sabbath? Why synagogue? Let me, let me tell you partially what I think is going on here. This is Jesus' first demonstration of the kingdom, the first demonstration of the authority of the kingdom. And there is a kind of authority in our lives that leads to rest and there's a kind of authority in our lives that leads to exhaustion. And the synagogue was supposed to be a place that led to rest. It was supposed to be a place that, that led to Sabbath rest. But what's happening in the synagogue at this time is you had authorities, you had leaders who were exercising their own authority, and it was turning the synagogue into a place of exhaustion. And so Jesus is going to step in, and he's going to turn it on its head. Let's keep reading. This is the scene. Verse 22. So he's teaching. And they were all astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So this is the first competing authority. The, the religious leaders of the day, the scribes in this day, were the people who, who did the public teaching in the synagogue. Right? And these were the people who were turning the synagogue into a place of exhaustion who are exerting their own authority on people, turning it into a place of exhaustion. And this is, this is the scene, right? And, and what's fascinating about this, what's really, what, I, what I really find interesting in this is that the, the people weren't struck by the content of Jesus. Did you see that? They were struck by the authority of Jesus. And they held the authority of Jesus up to the scribes, and they said, he's got authority, and it's different. It's just different. And you can almost hear the scribes, if you can imagine yourself being in the room at that time, you can, you can almost hear the scribes saying, prove it. Come on, you, you think this man has, prove it. Prove it. And so in walks a man, verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, unclean spirit is a demon. What have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is the second competing authority with Jesus that 
that the second competing authority is the demoniac, the, the demon, the demon who had possession of a man, the demon who was exercising authority of the man. And I, and I, need, to, I need to pause here and I need to address something. I know that there are many of us in this room right now uh, who have a hard time believing in things like demons, uh, things like an unseen world, right? I, I, I get it. But here, here's what I would want to say to you. If I could say it this way, for a Western culture that we're in, for a Western context, a Western culture who, who would say, I have a really hard time believing in something like that, you have to ask why we're so fascinated by it. You have to be willing to ask, if you don't believe, why are you so fascinated by it? Let me give you a couple examples. Um, the Sixth Sense. Who saw that movie? Sixth Sense. I didn't see it. I have no idea what it's about. I, <laughs> I mean, I know Bruce Willis and a floating kid. That's all, that's all I've got. Americans spent $294 million watching that movie. The Exorcist. Who saw that one? Say, show hands. Come on. Don't get uncomfortable when I say, show me your hands, all right? Who saw The Exorcist? Okay, you weren't uncomfortable. None of y'all just actually saw the movie. Okay, The Exorcist, $293 million spent. I didn't see that one either. And then Avatar, another movie I didn't see. Uh, not about demons, but an unseen world. You know, I just picked three movies that I didn't see. And so I need you to take my word that they fit, all right? <laughs> $760 million, $3 billion worldwide. Over the last... Over the last 20 years, some of the highest-rated TV shows have been about demons. Obviously not the best TV shows. Law & Order, uh, I don't think, had any. Um, so why do I bring this up? Here's why, here's why I bring this up. Movies and TV, let me, here's what they do. They show us what we want to see. Right? They, this is the thing they've tapped into. They put on the screen before us what we want to see. And we want to see movies and we want to see TV about an unseen world. We want to see it. Why? Because we are fascinated by it. Culturally, we are fascinated by it. And so here, here's what I'm pleading with you. Let me, let me, at a minimum, let me ask you this. Be intrigued. Right? Don't tune me out because we're talking about demons. In the same way that you would be intrigued by a movie, be intrigued by Jesus. Because if, if you let yourself be intrigued by Jesus here, and let yourself be intrigued in this. It might just reveal something to you about Christianity and about Jesus you never saw before. You see, the Bible is a story of two colliding kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And this demon was here as a representative of the kingdom of Satan. Exercising authority over a man. And Mark refers to this demon as an unclean spirit. And, and, and here's what Mark is doing. Mark, Mark is doing something in this text that, that when I saw it, let me tell you what happened. When I saw it, when this light bulb flashed, I, I was sitting at Boomtown Coffee Shop with Dodds Panger, our pastor of parishes and equipping. And the light bulb hit, and I just wanted to start crying. I didn't because I'm insecure and I was in public. But I wanted to start crying. Because Mark is doing something. Mark, Mark's not telling a story about a demon. Remember, Mark's telling a story about Jesus. You see, the demon is the bit character. He's the extra. He's me in the junior high play. Right? He, I've been counseling for this, all right? Um, he's the extra. The, the story of Mark, the gospel of Mark, is telling a story about the person and work of Jesus. And so in giving him the title, unclean spirit, 
Mark is saying something about Jesus here. That throughout the Old Testament, that which is unclean couldn't come in contact with the clean. That which is unclean can't come in contact with divinity. And so when Jesus collides and comes in contact with the demon and he he exercises his authority that we're going to see in a minute over the demon and the demon can't stay in his presence, Mark is saying something about the divinity and the authority of Jesus here. And when the demon comes in contact, he has two responses, fear and a declaration. What have you to do with us? And I know who you are, holy one of God, that he sees his divinity, he sees his authority. And what Mark might be calling us to right here, what what Mark might want to say to you right now, is he might say to you, follow the example of the demon. Bet you didn't expect to hear that in church. Acknowledge Jesus' divinity. Acknowledge his authority over your life. Look at Jesus for who he is and acknowledge his authority over your life. Follow his example. And when your life comes in contact with the divine, when it comes in contact with Jesus, we hand over authority in every area of our lives. There's no area of our life that's meant to go untouched by the authority of Jesus. But why is this so difficult? Like, why, why do I struggle with this? I'm not saying you struggle with this. I'll say that in a minute. Right now I'm saying I struggle with this. Like, why is it that I don't want to just lay down authority of my life, of the areas, of, of, of all areas of my life, to the authority of Jesus? Here's, here's why. I think the demon is another example here. The, the word cried out, crying out. When, when he said this, it's, it's a word associated with fear. It's a word used in other places in the Gospels associated with fear. And I think that the reason that we don't want to hand over authority of our lives is out of, I mean, deeply rooted in deep fear. I know it is in me, right? I, I don't want to hand over authority of my life because I'm afraid of what it will be like when I do. I want control over my life. I want my fist around my life. But when we come in contact with the authority of Jesus, our fist get op- gets opened. And we lay our life bare before the authority of Jesus, saying, do with me what you will. Do with me what you will. And see, if you, if you want to know what is your good life, if you want to know what your good life is, look at what you have to have. Look at what it is that you think you have to have. Because listen, we, we, we all live under the illusion of control. We, we live under this illusion. Our lives are governed by the illusion. And it's an illusion, but we, we, we live under the illusion that I can have this authority over my life, enough control over my life, that I can get what I deem to be my good life. We live, we're governed by the illusion, especially in our city, in our people, in our church family. So if you want to know what your good life is, ask yourself the question, what is it I have to have? If it's control, right, if your good life is control, here's what's going to happen. You're going to start realizing, I don't have control. You're going to think, I need control. You're not going to be able to get it, and it's going to lead to anxiety every time. If it's power, if I've got to have power, you're going to manipulate people, manipulate people to get what you want out of them. Right, if it's perish, if, if, if it's... Um, maybe it's this, maybe it's image, right? Maybe it's, I need you to think a certain way about me. And, and when, I, when I'm governed, when the authority of my life is what you think of me, 
here's what's going to happen in your parish. You're going you're to put a foot in, right? You're going to put a foot into this church as family. And if people respond to you the way you want them to respond, you probably throw both feet in. If they don't, you rip that foot out. So I'm in. I'm in for church as family as long as the family thinks of me what I want them to think of me. And if God is gracious, if he is gracious to you, he's going to show you that you're not in charge of your life, that you're not the authority of your life. He's going to give you some people who are not as impressed with you as you are. If it's control, he's going to show you that you can't be, you're not, you will never be. And here's what I think I think God is doing something in Houston right now. I think he's doing something in our, in our family, in our church family, in our people. That when we got to Houston in July, Houston felt like an incredibly stable city. And now it's just, it's not unstable, but it just doesn't feel as stable as it was. And God is shaking up our people in that. He's exposing areas that we thought we could control, and he's saying, you can't. I, I love you too much to let you live in your vision of the good life. I'm going to strip it from you so that I can show you there's a better life. There's a better life, and it's found in the counterintuitive authority. We're back at Mark 1, verse 25, Jesus rebuked him, rebuked him saying, be silent, come out of him, and the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And then Jesus here, he confronts the demon and he exercises authority over the demon. He simply speaks and the demon obeys. And this exercise of authority that Jesus has right here, it's profound. And at the same time, it's a foreshadow. It's a foreshadow to an event that would exercise even a greater degree of authority over the demonic, and it speaks to it in Colossians 1. This is, let me put a couple, couple passages, a couple verses together in Colossians for you. Chapter 1, verse 13. Don't turn that, it'll be on the screen behind me. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so we, we are in the domain of darkness. And then when you come to Jesus, when your life collides with Christ and you say, I'm in, you're transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. How? How does that happen? Let's look farther. In chapter 2, verse 13, it says, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands that he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. This is a reference to demons. He disarmed the rulers and authorities by putting them to open shame, by triumphing over them in him. That in the cross, here's what happened. That in the cross, you were reconciled to the Father. That in the cross, Jesus put the demonic to open shame. Shame, how? By triumphing over them. This is, this is an area of our theology. And our, uh, 
for sojourn in our kind of Acts 29 Western strand that we're a part of that's missing, that we don't, we don't give enough attention to, the, the triumphant Christ, the conquering Christ, that the Bible is this story of triumph, that this Bible is a story of triumph. It's a, a story of triumph primarily of God over evil, and the climax of this story is the cross. The climax of this triumphant story is the cross. And I want us to go deeper. I want us to get deeper into it. I, I want us to ask the question, how? Right, so let's ask how. How did Jesus triumph over the demonic in the cross? Because at a glance, if all we see is the cross, we, it doesn't look like triumph to me. But let's get in and we'll see it. So Ma- Matthew 4 is this story of, uh, of, of Jesus being tempted by Satan. So he's out in the wilderness, Satan's with him, and Satan is effectively offering him his kingdom. And he's saying, if you will submit to me, this is yours. And Jesus says no. He says no. He says, I will not submit to you. But here's what happened in the cross. In the cross, Jesus submitted to the Father. See, where Satan held out the kingdom, his kingdom, and Jesus said, no, I won't submit to you. Here's what the Father held out to the Son. The Father held out your sin and my sin, and Jesus said yes. He said, if you submit to me in the cross, I lay their sin upon you. Will you take it? Yes. Where he said, no, I won't submit to Satan. He said, yes, I will submit to the Father. See, just, just like Satan was, his agenda with the first Adam was to, with Adam, Genesis 1, 2, 3, was to get him to submit to him where he succeeded, he tried the same with Jesus, yet he failed. And Jesus triumphed over him in the cross by submitting to the Father. And this is why, this is why the gospel is such a counterintuitive authority. Right? Every, every leadership book you're going to read, everything under the sun, every other, um, I mean, I'm not I'm debating some examples. I'm going to stop debating. I'm just going to move on. Um, Everything you read is going to tell you the way of authority is power. The way of authority is power. And Jesus says the way of authority is submission. The gospel says you want authority over your life. You don't need to get power over your life. You get submission in your life. You want authority over your future. You submit your future to Jesus. As a son submitted to the father, you submit to the son. You want authority over your future? Submit to the son. You don't try to control your future. You don't try to exercise power over your future. You submit the authority of your future to the authority of the son. That's how you exercise authority over your life. The counterintuitive authority of the gospel is that authority isn't found in power. It's found in submission. And when you come colliding face-to-face with the authority of Jesus, with the counterintuitive authority of Jesus, it leads to a counterintuitive response. Look at verse 27. And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new kind of teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Now this, this text, this, this little verse right here, it's got three responses. It's a progressive 
response to your life coming in contact with the authority of Jesus. They build on one another. And I'm going to want to walk through and look at them. The first one, it says they were amazed. Literally, the word, it's, it's to be filled with wonder. That, that when we collide with Jesus, when our life comes in contact with Jesus at a minimum, I mean, you might think this is crazy, but at a minimum, he, he deserves your wonder. Like, even if you think this is crazy, a carpenter who split the calendar in half, he deserves your wonder, your curiosity. In May of 2000, I, I was in a room like this. I got invited into a room like this. And, uh, and, and the truth is, I had no idea what they were talking about. I just knew I didn't want them to stop talking. This was, I was filled with wonder. This was immense. I was curious. I just wanted to hear more and more. I had no idea what was happening. I couldn't put it in a box. I couldn't explain it. I just knew I wanted them to keep talking. This was a stage I was in. I was amazed. I was curious. I was filled with wonder. And then second, it says they questioned. So they, they were amazed, and it led them to question together. That it's okay to have questions. If, if you're in that stage, if you're going, okay, now I'm, I'm curious, but now I've got some questions about this, this Christianity, it's okay. Ask your questions. Listen, Christianity, what God is after is not just an abstract, completely blind faith. He wants your heart captivated, but he wants your heart captivated by historical events, events that happened, death and resurrection of Jesus. And so ask questions. Listen, I, I peppered these guys who invited me into this room with questions because I didn't understand. I wanted to understand. Some of the things I wanted to understand was about the weird church hand motions. I didn't get that. It didn't make any sense to me. But I wanted to, I wanted to know what was this thing that I was being invited into. Ask questions. God's a big God. He will, he will welcome your questions. And then it, it says it, it led them from there to believe without understanding. Let me try to show you that they didn't didn't fully understand, and yet they believed. It says, a new teaching. Here's how I know. They said, what is this? A new teaching with authority. But they were wrong. Now, I'm not saying the Bible is wrong. I'm saying the people in the synagogue didn't fully understand the Jesus that was in front of them. Here's why. It wasn't new. It wasn't new. Jesus went to great lengths throughout the New Testament to show my teaching isn't new, right? So, so John 5, Moses wrote what? Of me. Luke 24, if I could paraphrase and summarize what he says to his disciples, he, he says this, makes this categorical statement, these three categories that the, the Old Testament was divided into, and he says the entirety of the Old Testament's about me. The, the content of Jesus' teaching wasn't new, it was a fulfillment, not knew. They didn't fully understand what was in front of them, and yet they believed. And here, here's why I think this is so important, that if you're in here and you're curious or you're questioning, you will never have enough answers to believe. You simply will never have all of the answers. And if that is unsatisfactory to you, join the club. But the Bible is full of men who saw Jesus, who encountered Jesus, who came in contact with the people of Jesus, who came face to face with God, and they believed and then grew in their understanding of what they believed. And here's what, here's what I'm inviting you to. Maybe ask God for the courage to say, I want to believe. I want to believe. 
help me say I'm in. And watch what happens to your understanding of understanding. Say, I want to believe, and then watch what happens to your understanding of understanding. And then from there, to all of this, I would say, listen, this illusion of the good life, this illusion of control that we've all bought into, let it go. Lay it down at the authority of Jesus, the authority that you want to have over your life, over your future. Lay it bare before the authority of Jesus. That, That control and authority was an illusion. It was an illusion for the scribes, an illusion for the demon, and it's an illusion for you. That we might lay our life bare, lay it down, lay the authorities, lay the control down before the authority of God because the good life, listen, this is what God is after in you, the good life. It's not found in prosperity. And it's not found in the life that you vision for yourself. It's found in the life that Christ died for you to have. The good life is found in the life that Christ died for you to have. It's not found in grabbing authority. It's found in handing it over to the authority of Jesus. And our prayer, my prayer, and our collective prayer is that as a family, as this church family, whether it's Sojourn Heights, Sojourn Montrose, future Sojourn congregations, our prayer, our prayer, the church at large in Houston, is that if we do this, if we collectively do this as a family, as a church, not just one-offs, but if we lay the authority and control of our lives down at the feet of Jesus and say, you have authority, take control of my life, that verse 28 might be true for us, might be true in us and through us, that the fame of Jesus would spread, that it would spread, that we would offer Houston an alternative life, an alternative way of viewing the future, an alternative way of looking at instability in an oil market. And in it, from the heights to our surrounding neighborhoods to the rest of Houston, the fame of Jesus might spread. Let's pray.